Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 15 as we continue our series through the book of Genesis. As we walk through and look at these very foundational chapters, that really set the foundation for all of the Christian faith. Not only Genesis 1 through 3, that's true, but Genesis 1 through 11 set some serious foundations for understanding of all those things of the Christian faith. We will be reading Genesis 2, 15 through 17. So Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this as what it is, your word. We pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear what it is that he sang to the churches. We know that this word, written by Moses, was superintended by your spirit, not only for the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, but for your people in every generation. Christ, you are Lord and Savior, the head of our church. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. We trust that you will, that you are here even now walking among your churches. May we hear your word for what it is. May we repent of our own sins. May we rejoice in the incredible kindness that's been shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you all know it's become popular to say... It's, it's quite a popular phrase, in fact, to say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Now, to be fair, what some folks mean when they say Christianity is a relationship and not a religion, what some folks mean is, if your Christianity is just mere empty formalism, in other words, just going through the motions of religious ceremonies, baptism, communion, church membership, etc. If that's all it is for you, just going through the motions, then it's not really the true article. Now, that's not what everyone means when they say that, however. Some folks, when they say Christianity is a relationship and not a religion, what they mean is if your Christianity has any religious form, any religious form, if it has anything more than some expression of privatized spiritual intimacy, if your Christianity includes any obligations to particular doctrinal creeds, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, or any particular laws like you should gather for corporate worship, don't forsake the gathering yourselves together, or, you know, a variety of other laws, any institutions like churches that have elders and deacons and church discipline, or any formal religious practices like baptism and the Lord's Supper, or just name it. 
then your Christianity is really just a kind of false religion. It's not the true thing. These folks want the relationship with God, but they do not want that relationship to take any biblically determined form. This is similar to the kind of relationship we see with people who want to live together but not get married. You know what that looks like. We love each other. We don't need some piece of paper. We don't need some legal or church acknowledgement. In other words, we want the relationship, but we do not want it to take some particular form like a marriage covenant. But what these folks are saying is where they don't want a marriage covenant, what are they saying? Really, what are you saying when you say you don't want a marriage covenant? You want the relationship, but not the form of a marriage covenant. What are you saying? Well, to answer that, we really have to ask the question, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? J.I. Packer helpfully defined covenant in this way. Covenants in Scripture are solemn agreements. Now, he'll go on to say those solemn agreements may be unilaterally imposed. In other words, imposed by one party. So God imposes a covenant. God comes to Noah and says, here's what I'm going to do. Right? They may be unilaterally opposed, or they may be mutual agreements like a marriage covenant. A husband and wife come together and make an agreement. But either way, they're solemn agreements that bind parties. Husband, party, wife, party, right? That bind parties to each other in permanently defined relationships. Permanently defined relationships with specific promises, claims, and obligations on both sides. I hope you caught that. Covenants are solemn agreements between parties that permanently bind those parties together. And those covenants have promises and obligations. They also often, one thing Packer doesn't include here is they have signs attached to them. So there are signs attached to those covenants, and those covenants even have penalties and rewards. So think of the marriage covenant given to us by God for a moment. Here are the parties. You have a husband and a wife. I don't care what the state of California says. There's no such thing as spouse one and spouse two. The marriage covenant is given by God. We all know it, and just because a wicked state wants to deny that doesn't make it true. There is a husband and a wife. That's the only marriage covenant that exists. That's it. There is no marriage covenant between other kinds of parties. There is a marriage covenant between one biological male and one biological female, and that's it. Everything else is a mirage. Some fantasy that wicked and corrupt minds have created. And they're bound together in a permanently defined relationship. In the covenant of marriage, God makes the two one. We're told this in Malachi 2.14. He makes the two one by the working of his Holy Spirit. And we see both promises and obligations in a marriage covenant. We do. You make vows or promises to one another and you're obligated to keep them. So you stand in front of generally a minister of the gospel or of the state, and you stand in front of a group of people, 
and you stand before God, most importantly, and you make vows to each other, promises, and those promises are attended with particular obligations, things like, I'll keep myself only unto you as long as we both shall live. And then we have signs in our marriage covenants. You know what we do? We exchange rings. So there's my ring. My wedding ring does not make me married. If I take it off, I'm still married. If I put it on, I'm married. But the ring isn't magical. The ring is a sign. And it reminds me that I'm in a covenant. It reminds me that I'm in a covenant. And it tells everybody else I'm in a covenant. There's even a kind of penalty or reward with the marriage covenant, a kind of blessing or a curse that comes with keeping or violating my marriage covenant. If you're faithful to your vows, then you have the fruition of intimacy with your spouse and you know the blessings of marriage. If you are unfaithful to your vows, then your marital intimacy dies The covenant is broken, divorce often ensues, and you generally experience or suffer something like a curse. I bring this up because we know that the marriage covenant is not a meaningless formality. We know it. We know it. We'll look at it actually more next week. And people who want the relationship but not the covenant, really never have the real thing. And they know it. Well, folks, God relates to man. I want you to hear this. God relates to man by way of covenant. By way of covenant. Covenant is of the essence of true religion. When we speak about the relationship between the creator and the creature, we're thrust into a discussion of covenants. Because the only way the creature can relate to the creator is if the creator imposes or gives a covenant. Throughout the Bible, we're told that God relates to man by way of covenant. So we're going to look at one today, but think about some of the future biblical covenants. Noah. God makes promises to Noah. I'll never again flood the earth. God even gives Noah a sign, the rainbow. I'm not going to get into all the details of every covenant. Abraham. God makes promises to Abraham. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will multiply your seed. I will give you a promised land. Through your seed, I will bless all the nations. Here's the sign. Circumcision. Moses. He makes a covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. They have a sign, actually, Passover and then additionally the Sabbath. And what are they told in the Mosaic Covenant? Keep it, you'll be fruitful in the land, it'll flow with milk and honey. Violate it, I will curse you and cast you out of the land and exile you. There's a covenant with David. There's the new covenant in Christ. It has signs, baptism, communion. It has obligations. Believe, repent. Obey. 
God always relates to us by way of covenant. Always. So there's no such thing as having a relationship with God without religion. Because covenant is the essence of religion. The essence of true religion is covenant. The covenants God makes provide us the substance and the form of our relationship with God. The substance, I will be your God, you will be my people. The form, here are your obligations. Here are the signs. Here are the blessings. Here are the curses. This is why the English Protestant confessions rightly say this. All the English Protestant confessions rightly say this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him, fruitfulness, if you will, of him as their blessedness and reward, but, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So this morning I want to look at the first covenant God made with man. The first covenant that God made with man. It's the covenant that God made with Adam. As we look at that covenant that God made with Adam, I want to look at four aspects of it. So here's what I'm getting at. Four aspects of the covenant. First, who are the parties of the covenant? Who are the parties of the covenant? Like a husband and a wife are parties? Who are the parties of this covenant? Second, what are the obligations of the covenant? What are the obligations? Like in marriage, I'm obligated to keep myself only unto you as long as you both shall live. What are the obligations of the covenant? To honor you, etc.? Okay, what are the obligations? Third, what are the signs of the covenant? Like in marriage, I have a ring. What are the signs in this covenant between God and Adam? And fourth... What is the penalty and the reward of the covenant? Or, if you will, the blessings and curses of the covenant. What are they? So that's what we're going to look at. First, let's look at the covenant parties. The covenant parties. Who are they? Here's what I want to do. I want to say that we can see all the structures of covenant between God and Adam in the garden. All the structures of a covenant we can see between God and Adam. First, we see the parties. God and Adam. God and Adam. These are the two parties. Second, we see the obligations. If you remember in Genesis 1.28, do this. Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, having dominion over all the created order, if you will. We also see, Adam, do not do this. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree. So you have both Parties, God and Adam, obligations, do this, don't do that. Signs of the covenant, there are two trees that are signs. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we even see rewards. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill this. And we see penalties. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And we see that cursing in Genesis 3, 14 and following as penalties. 
Further, we're told in Hosea 6-7 that Adam was in a covenant with God. The reason I lay out the fact that we see the structures of a covenant with Adam is because some people say, well, the word covenant isn't in Genesis 2. But all the structures of a covenant are there. And if you're a Jew coming out of the land of Egypt with Moses and you read this text, you're going, oh, Adam's in a covenant. Now, Hosea 6-7 just tells us that Adam was in a covenant, just so you know. Like Adam, they, being Israel, transgressed the covenant. Hear that? Israel violated their covenant, the Mosaic covenant made at Mount Sinai, just like Adam violated his covenant. Now, it's obvious the covenant parties are God and Adam. But what you may not realize, here's what I want to get at with these parties. What you may not realize is that Adam is acting as a federal head. When I say Adam's acting as a federal head, what I mean is Adam is representing all mankind. He's representing all men and women. You guys know what federal headship is and people acting on your behalf as a federal head because we have a federal government. We're actually in a, in a kind of, if you will, covenantal form of government. The people have made a covenant called the Constitution in which they have told the government, you have certain limited powers. Now, please catch that. The people have granted to the government certain limited powers. Not the government has granted to the people certain limited rights. You understand the distinction there? We've granted to them certain limited powers. And in the granting to them of certain limited powers, we've granted the federal government may do particular things on behalf of the people. For example, the federal government may declare war on behalf of the people. Not the president, the Congress, but that's another topic may declare war on behalf of the people. But here's the point I want you to understand. When the federal government declares war on behalf of the people, you would say not, you don't sit at your home and say, America's at war with X country. You say, we're at war with that country. Because you understand when your federal head acts on your behalf, you are acting with them. When we were in World War II, when we were in the Vietnam War, do you hear how that works? If Adam sins and breaks the covenant, then we all sin in him. Adam's judgment and curse comes upon us all. We're all guilty and corrupted in Adam. Listen to how Paul says this. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what he says in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. So I want you to follow this. God and Adam are the parties. God and Adam. Adam, as a representative of us all, are the parties in this covenant. Now, let's look second at the obligation, the obligations of the covenant with Adam. When God covenanted with man, he gave him obligations in two regards. Two kinds of obligations, if you will. He gave him vocational obligations. You know what vocation is? Like, what's your calling, your vocation? What's your calling? In other words, Brett has the vocation of being a lawyer. The Lord knows we live in a fallen world, and by his grace has granted us with lawyers. Right? And by his grace will someday remove them from the earth. So we understand he's got that calling presently. That's his vocation. Some of you are stay-at-home moms. That's your vocation. That's the calling the Lord has placed in your life at this point. 
arguably the most important of all vocations, raising human beings. And so you have that vocation. Well, I say man has vocational obligations. Man was created to work. Created to work. He was not created. I don't want you to understand the Garden of Eden is like just being this place where Adam and Eve were created just sort of lounge around, like eat the fruit they want and just kind of relax and hang out. Isn't it lovely? He was created to dwell in God's creation with God as someone who works, as someone who works. Man would labor for six days, and on the seventh day he would worship, for it was holy to the Lord. It was a day consecrated to God for worship. But what was his work? Look at Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look down at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As an image bearer of God created body and soul in true righteousness and holiness, man was to exercise dominion over God's creation. He was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with these image bearers. Men and women who are body and soul, rational human beings who are righteous and holy, and who rule over God's creation in a manner that honors him. This was man's kingly vocation. You hear that? Kingly vocation. It was his calling to be a kind of vice regent, administering God's kingdom under God's rule in a sort of kingly fashion. Further, look at Genesis 2.15, getting to our main text this morning. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And this word keep is the word for guarding. He was to work the garden of Eden and keep it or guard it. It's the same Hebrew word we get at the end of Genesis 3 where the cherubim are guarding the way back into the garden. This language is used throughout the Pentateuch. When I say the Pentateuch, I mean the first five books of the Bible. I mean the book of Moses, that five-scrolled book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is used in all of Moses' writing when you take these two terms to work it, this word for priestly service, and to guard it, and they're placed together. They are always placed together in every occasion to speak about priestly service. The priest was to serve and to guard in God's temple. And Adam was to do the same. So Adam was commanded to be a kind of priest king in God's creation. That was his vocation, his calling. He was to work as a kind of priest king. He was to glorify God in all his work. And this was shown in the consummation of each week, the Sabbath set apart for the worship of God. In other words, Adam was created for this purpose. He was created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
So we were given vocational obligations to pattern our week after God's creation week, a pattern of work and worship for the glory of God. God gave Adam vocational obligations. And God also gave Adam ethical obligations. So he gave him vocational obligations, and he gave him ethical obligations. So that's what I want to look at in this set of obligations, or his ethical obligations. Adam was commanded to listen to and obey God's voice. He was created with a rational soul and body. He was created in true righteousness and holiness. And this means that Adam was created, catch this, he was created knowing God's moral law. He knew it. He knew naturally, I want you to hear this, he knew naturally right from wrong, good from evil. He knew it. I don't mean he knows evil in the way he will come to know it in Genesis 3, which we'll look at, but he knows good from evil. When God blessed him and told him to rule over the earth, to work and guard the garden, Adam knew he must exercise that vocation with the same holy and righteous character he saw in the Lord. He knew that. He knew he was not to go out and exercise that vocation wickedly. He knew that as an image bearer, he knew that as an image bearer of the holy and righteous God. He knew that he was created to love God and to love others. He knew he should not violate God's law or he would die. He knew that naturally. And folks, in this sense, in this sense, the image of God is still in all men and women. We all know God's moral law naturally. We all know it. You're born with that law written on your heart. And you know if you violate that law, you will die. You know it. You know you deserve it. Listen to how Paul addresses this in Romans 2. Now, in Romans 2, Paul is talking about Jews who have the law. What he means by them having the law is they were given the Ten Commandments. God gave it to them inscribed on stones. Those Jews have the law. And here's what he says. For when Gentiles, now he's going to transition to Gentiles, those who don't have this special revelation of God we call the Bible, they don't have the special revelation of God written on tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. They don't have that. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, listen to what they show, that the work of the law is written on their hearts. It's written on their hearts. They know it naturally as image bearers of God. Further, Paul tells us that those same pagans, those same Gentiles who have no access to Scripture, no access to general revelation, he says they know they deserve to die for violating God's law. After cataloging sins, which are all violations of the Ten Commandments, Paul says this in Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree. He's talking about pagans. They've never had a Bible. They're not in the Mosaic Covenant. They've never heard of the Ten Commandments. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
Here's my point. Adam naturally knew God's moral law, and so do we. That's why all men rightly stand condemned. No one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, everywhere. No one goes to hell unjustly, for God is not unjust. However, Adam was also given a special law. He was given a law he would not know naturally. Theologians will call this kind of law a positive law. What they mean by positive law is given by God in special revelation in the context of a covenant, and you wouldn't know it naturally. So what was the positive law? Let me give you an example. We have laws like this in Christianity. Things in the new covenant you wouldn't know naturally. For example, you wouldn't naturally know that you're commanded to be baptized. People aren't born knowing that. Nor that you're commanded to partake in the Lord's Supper. That's not something you naturally know. That's something you only know because it's a positive law God gave in the new covenant. Written in special revelation of the scripture. Those positive laws God reveals in scripture. You don't know them by natural birth. You don't know them simply because you're an image bearer of God. So what are the special or positive law? What was revealed to Adam? Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. Now just so you know, this command syntactically, grammatically, it looks like one of the Ten Commandments, identically to the Ten Commandments. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not. You shall not eat. Adam was not born knowing that law. He's not born knowing it. We know he's not born knowing it because the Lord comes to him now and teaches it to him, reveals it to him. When I say Adam was born, you understand, given life where the spirit was breathed into him so he lives. He wasn't born as an infant. You guys understand that. The Lord placed one tree in the garden that Adam was not to eat from. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm going to deal with that tree more in the future. But for now, just understand that. He was given a law. You shall not eat from that tree. Now this leads me to signs. So those are the obligations. The party, God, and Adam, and all men in Adam. The obligations, moral law, and the special given law, you shall not eat of that tree. Now let's look at the signs of the covenant and the penalties and rewards. So first, the signs of the covenant, briefly. Look at Genesis 2.9. Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God creates all these trees from which Adam can eat, but then there are two special trees. The first is the tree of life. We know that if Adam eats from that tree, he will live forever. 
That's why in Genesis 3.22, we're told we better kick him out of the garden lest he eats from that tree and lives forever. The partaker of that fruit lives forever. The other tree, the second tree, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that if Adam eats from that tree, he will die. We know that from Genesis 2.17. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it or you will surely die. Now, here's something I want to just dispel for you right at the top. These are not magical trees. Now, some people look at it and go, what a goofy religion. You have magical trees in the garden. We don't believe in magic. You understand that? We're not pagans. Pagans believe in magic. These aren't magical. I don't mean we don't go see a magic show. You understand what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. I mean pagan magic. We don't believe in that. These aren't magical trees. The trees do not have special properties. That's somehow magical in the fruit that if you eat it, you live forever. If you, if you eat the other one, you die. What these trees are is sacramental. The trees are sacramental. What do I mean by that? The trees were set apart by God as signs. As signs. We imagine these two trees are just trees with normal fruit on them but set apart as signs. God gave a verbal command. Do not eat of this tree. And God gave a visible sign or picture to go with it. Here's the tree I'm telling you. I command you, you obey me. It functions like baptism. I'm a baptism class today. Baptism is not magical water. When we baptize you in water... It isn't magical. But those who are baptized are receiving the sign and seal of God's saving grace in Christ. That's what they're receiving. They're being sealed or marked off as belonging to the triune Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're receiving a sign that they are washed clean, forgiven their sins, declared righteous in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening there. But the water has no magical properties. It's sacramental water. It's a sign. Baptism, the sign, is closely tied to the saving grace in Christ, which is the thing being signified. Whenever you have a sign, it's pointing to something. So you see a sign for a hospital? You understand an emergency? You don't stop and hang out at the sign. The sign is telling you the hospital's there, but you know it's not the thing being signified. You know that. Well, baptism is a sign pointing to a thing signified the grace of God found in Christ alone. Thus, when people in the book of Acts believe, what do they immediately do? They get baptized. They believe in Jesus Christ and they're baptized. God gave us a verbal command. Here's the verbal command. Believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and be saved. And here, by the way, folks, is the sign Be baptized in the name of the triune Lord. That's the visual, if you will. Christians love visuals. We should. God gave us two. Let's rejoice in them. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're two visible words that God gave us about his grace in Christ. Well, the eating of these trees has the same kind of function As a sacramental sign. God gave you a command. 
if you break it, you die. The tree is a sign. Eating from that fruit is a sign of you breaking God's command. Thus you die. If you perpetually, perfectly keep it, you live. Eating from the tree of life, eating that fruit, is a sign that you've perpetually, perfectly kept his commands. And that leads to our fourth point. If these two different trees point to two different outcomes, let's talk then about the blessing and curse or the penalty and reward of the covenant forth, the penalty and reward of the covenant, the blessing curse. Look at Genesis 2, 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will die. That's the penalty for violating the covenant. That's the curse for covenant-breaking Now we're going to look more at the penalty of death in Genesis 3. I want you to hear what the penalty of death looks like now, but I want you to understand, like if you're trying to write it down real fast in your notes, it's futile, just give up. Genesis 3 will take plenty of time on the penalty. (laughs) The whole chapter, basically, on it. The penalty of death really here has three aspects. First, it's a spiritual death. In other words, Adam will be under the guilt and power of sin. Second, it's a physical death. Our bodies will decay and return to dust. Thus we all die. Third, it's eternal death. It's what John calls the second death. This is the judgment of hell. It has been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Now we'll look at that in more depth in the future. Here's the point. This would be the penalty for Adam if he disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what would be the reward for Adam if he obeyed God? What would be the reward if he obeyed God? Well, if Adam would get to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Don't miss what this means. This means Adam was created holy and righteous. He was created holy and righteous. With the end that he would live forever with God, dwelling with God. But his character was mutable. You know what I mean by that? Changeable. If he disobeyed God, he could change into becoming unholy and unrighteous. One who dies rather than one who lives. That's the penalty for sin in that he dies. And that unrighteous and unholy state would belong to us all. Belong to us all. But if he obeyed God, he would also change. What do I mean by that? If he obeyed God perfectly, perpetually, he would become immutably holy and righteous. Unchangingly holy and righteous and live forever with God. Never subject to death. If that happened... If Adam had obeyed, we would all be born immutably holy and righteous. We would all be born to live forever with God. And we would not be subject to death. We'd live forever. This is what theologians have historically called the covenant of works. 
If Adam obeyed God perfectly and perpetually, then Adam would have merited eternal life. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't mean that God would have owed Adam something. As creatures, if we obey God, we've only done our duty. God is indebted to us zero. He can never be in debt to us. What I mean is that God kindly covenanted with Adam that if you obey me perfectly and perpetually, you will inherit eternal life. You will be unchangeably holy and righteous. You'll never be able to fall into sin again. But Adam failed to keep the covenant God made with him. That's why Paul will say something in Ephesians 2.1 like we were all born dead in our sins and trespasses. That's why we're all condemned. Paul says in Romans 5.18, therefore, as one trespass, Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. We are all fallen and sinful in Adam. All of us. You guys have heard it. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. But here's the good news. God made another covenant. He made a covenant of grace. A covenant of grace. What I mean by that is it's a covenant of grace in as much as another man keeps it for us. If Adam, when I say covenant works, could have merited eternal life by God's promise and kindness, could have merited eternal life through perfectly and perpetually keeping God's law, what I mean in this covenant of grace is God said, because you failed, I will send another man in your place to keep it for you. The seed of the woman who would be sent to crush the head of the serpent. There would be a mediator between God and man. A second Adam. Someone who would be holy, righteous, and undefiled. Someone who would be tempted in every way and yet without sin. Someone who would fulfill all righteousness, keeping every precept of the law of God, every command that God gives us, and someone who would come and keep the penalty of God's law for us, stand in our place condemned. And that's the God-man, our Lord, Jesus Christ. He would do this so that we would receive the reward and not the penalty. This second Adam would bring us resurrection from the dead. And thus make us, hear this, thus make us immutably holy and righteous. Immutably those who live forever. Now, I want you to hear this because you say, what do you mean? When I trusted in Christ... I'm now unchangeably holy and righteous, and I now live forever? Yes. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. What does Jesus say happens when you trust in him? Eternal life is yours already. You have it. The day you were born again, you came alive forever, immutably. Yes, your body dies, but at the return of Christ, it will be resurrected. But you never die. You're alive spiritually, no longer under the bondage of sin and death. You're alive eternally. You will never die. 
and face the second death, you will face eternal blessedness with God forever. And you're actually, in one sense, alive physically, inasmuch as the promise of the resurrection of the body is yours. That's all given to us immutably, unchangeably. Please hear this. Adam could fall into sin and be damned. When you are born anew in Christ, you can never be lost. You can never be lost. You're his forever and he's yours. You might say, well, I still struggle with sin. It still feel like I'm in a battle. Yes, you are because you still live in this old creation. It's a constant war until Christ returns and consummates it all. So that you're no longer living in the old creation in any sense. You're living only in the eternal dwelling of God in the new heavens and new earth. We're looking forward to that. It's not ours yet. But here's what is ours now. You are presently seated with Christ in heavenly places. He is now yours and you are now his. And those he saves, he does not let go of. And no one can snatch you out of his hand. No one. Inasmuch as Christ resurrected and was vindicated before all as holy, righteous, and undefiled, so you in the final judgment will be resurrected and vindicated in Christ. That's just grace. Grace. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. You can turn there. I'm going to end here. Romans 5, verse 15. He's talked about us all falling in Adam. And he's going to contrast Adam and Christ. Listen to what he says. But the free gift... Romans 5, 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. See, notice the contrast. Adam could have merited, you're given a free gift in Christ. He merited for you. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, the forgiveness of sins, the declaration of righteousness. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You hear the good news, Sovereign Grace? You hear it? You're saved by Jesus Christ. 
by his obedience. Not by yours. Not by yours, by his. And folks, if you're not a believer in here, I want you to understand, there are two paths for you or two choices for you. You can stand before God wrapped in Adam's clothes, wrapped in your own good works, trying to merit God's favor. But you will find that all of your good works are merely filthy rags on that great day. And you will stand in judgment before God. And the outcome will be just condemnation. Or you can stand before God wrapped in Christ's clothes. His holy, righteous, undefiled clothes. Knowing that he merited eternal life for you. Those are your options. Turn to Christ and be saved. Turn to Christ and be saved. Love to talk to you after the service about what that means. For those of you who are believers, be thankful. Be thankful. You come before a holy God, you draw near to him even now, not on the basis of anything you've done. On the basis of good works, but not your good works, his good works, which are credited to you forever that's glorious good news trust him obey him give thanks for him let me pray father we are thankful for christ and his grace to us we know that as creatures we have no way to relate to you but by way of the covenants that you unilaterally and graciously impose we recognize that you have made promises to us in the covenant with Christ. That you gave obligations to Adam that he failed to keep, but that Christ kept for us. And we are thankful. We pray that we would look to him and him alone. And that we would give thanks. That we would be grateful. That we would rejoice. That your spirit would cause us. Our eyes to be open more and more. To see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And that we would more and more want to be like him. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.